0: Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Van Maren and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Those of you who have been following along with this show know that one of the issues that I'm passionate about talking about is the issue of pornography, because it is, at this point, a plague that infects almost every nook and cranny of our society. And those of you who have been listening to this show since the beginning will have heard interviews I've done about this issue, including one interview with Jessica Neely, who was one of the most Googled porn stars of 2009, left the porn industry, and now spends her time advocating against... Against porn. And I've been waiting for a while for the opportunity to bring somebody else on, somebody else who survived the porn industry, just to give us all another inside glimpse of what that industry looks like, how vile, repellent, and repulsive it is, and to just give anybody listening more incentive to either quit porn themselves or to urge everybody around them to quit pornography. And so I was actually introduced some time ago Uh, via email to a porn actress or former porn actress named Deanna Spangler. Uh, When she grew up, she wanted to be a model or an actress. She wanted to do something where she got noticed. Uh, But she grew up with an alcoholic and suicidal mom. And this led to a spiral, which I'm not going to get into too much detail on in this introduction because that's part of the story Deanna will be sharing with us, led to a spiral where she ended up in the pornography industry. And she was already familiar with porn at this time because her mom would show her movies that her parents already watched when she was only six years old. And so she ended up entering the porn industry, became one of the porn industry's most popular stars, and endured horrifying things before her story reached a... Very unlikely, but happy conclusion. And so without any further introduction, I'd like to introduce my conversation with former porn performer Deanna Spangler. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. Well, just to get started, could you tell our listeners a bit about your story?
1: Sure. Um, So I was introduced to pornography probably when I was like six or seven years old. And my mom thought it was hilarious because, um, watching it that young as a child, like it would, it would make me scream. Like I was terrified of what they were doing. Um, but the interesting part about that was it actually started the cycle in me from an early age. And by the time I was in first grade, I knew, um, like I literally remember the spot when I was walking to school and I thought when I grow up, I'm going to be a porn star. I'm going to be just like those women in those movies. Right. And, um, fast forward, she ended up passing away, um, when I was 10 years old and I really didn't have, um, a super good idea of what, what being a woman meant and having seen her behaviors and then what she had showed me, um, and everything I was surrounded with, I just ended up going in some really bad directions with drugs and alcohol, um, by about 12 years old and, um, and eventually with. Sex and prostitution, and and keeping up with the drug lifestyle. So, um, so by the time I was 18, I actually got in trouble with the law, and my pimp had had offered a way for me to, um, to kind of start over. Uh, he had sent me to an agent's house, and like I had to shoot uh, movies for free so that I would have a place to live and transportation and stuff like that. Um, and actually kind of backing up before that, an interesting part of my story is when I was 17, I was working for Hooters and they had, um, had me enter a swimsuit competition where the winner wins the layout in Playboy magazine. Um, and the interesting thing about that was they, that was the first time I really knew there was acceptable forms of selling yourself for sex. Right. And, um, and so while the girls there, they were prostituting on the side, that's actually how I ended up getting into prostitution with the the servers at Hooters, uh, at the particular store that I worked at. And, um, and so it was just interesting because they were like, were like, you can't work at a strip club and you can't do this kind of porn, but this kind of porn's okay. And we do this on the side. This is like a really confusing message for a girl just graduating high school, um, So fast forward, I I figured, you know, okay, I'll get my life together. I'll get enough money, like get my own car. Maybe I'll go back to college, like all this stuff. And before you know it, like I'm, you know, I'm years into the industry and I end up trying to work my way out um, even on the distribution side. So even after I stopped performing, I ended up becoming the, the company's like national sales manager. And it was about 10 years before I got out. And that happens a lot where people are like, okay, I'll do like one or two, I'll pay for a college class. And then like, you're so demoralized afterwards that you really don't know what to do after that.
0: Right, right. Let's back up just a little bit. Uh, So where was this all taking place in the United States?
1: Um, So I had started in Arizona, but when I went to the corn industry, that was in Los Angeles, California. Right.
0: Right. And so one of the main questions that sort of needs to be addressed is the question that I get on anybody who talks about the issue of pornography gets is, well, the girls that are in pornography want to be in pornography. They're being paid good money. If they wanted to walk away, they just would. I've spoken to other people, survivors of the porn industry about this question. What is your response when you hear that accusation, which as I'm sure, you know, is very common.
1: So the thing is, um, you have to be able to put a smile on your face for them to hire you. And so like to act like you're enjoying it and all of that stuff, like if if you don't, if you in the slightest don't look like you want to be there, like you lose your job. And so as far as the choices go, you have to look at like what, what those choices looked like. So the upbringing that I had like, that didn't look any different than the abuse that I already had gone through, except I thought, like, like my thought process was, okay, I can stay in a hotel and possibly be murdered, or I can go to the porn industry where there's witnesses. Like, that was my choice. Right. And so, like, it wasn't until I met, like, healthy people, because the thing is, is, like, when you don't really have, like, family nurturing you, and, and these people prey on you like they know that they know that you don't have anybody to go to. And so when these people prey on you and they offer you like a way out and you don't have any other examples, it does look like a good lifestyle until you sober up and you feel like you realize, like, gosh, like, I really want to put on clothes. Like, I really want to learn what it's like to have a normal conversation or go out on a date or something. And it wasn't, wasn't until I found healthy people That I could say, oh my gosh, if that's the life I actually want to live, how do I make choices that that lead me there? And I needed people to help me do that.
0: So what are the connections between prostitution and the porn industry? Because you're now the third former porn performer that I've talked to who said the two go hand in glove. You can't really distinguish the difference. Most people Mm -hmm. working in the porn industry are doing uh, escort services and prostitution on the
1: side. Right. Yeah, um, every single agency that I had worked with had they set you up with what you call private. And so what happens is either the producers, the producers' friends, um, actors, singers, uh, like whoever they're dealing with uh, as buyers, they usually hire you out to other buyers um, so that they'll actually distribute your movies in the store. Um, so prostitution, like trafficking, like all that stuff is like happening right there in the industry. Um, But the other connection is the way that like pimps and predators get you is they say like, I'm going to make you famous. Like I'm going to make you a model. And so they start you with like um, like a few like photo shoots and then all of a sudden they offer you like a bunch more alcohol and drugs and more money to sleep with the guy who owns the place that you're doing the photo shoot for. And then um, as they're doing that, so like with what he did with me, when I got into the industry, is he would go and start using my pictures and my, like, quote-unquote fame and started using that to traffic other girls into his prostitution circle. And then once they were, he would prep them, um, he'd, he'd do awful things to prep you so that you'd be able to handle what you're going to go into the industry and do, and then he'd send you off. And so, that's how he got more what does that when mean he eighteen What does that mean Prep you um he has you you basically lay there and let him do whatever he needs to do, and you have to learn how to not make facial expressions so that they'll hire you in the porn industry,
0: right, which is not something that I would warrant most people watching porn are aware of right. So when we look at at the porn industry today uh, and you look at what your path into the porn industry was, if you had to explain it um, uh, to somebody, uh, like to go point A, point B, how did you end up working in the porn industry and how would you rebut the idea um, that the porn industry is something that people join because they really want to join it? Like the things that you're describing um, are horrible, Mm -hmm. And yet a lot of people will say, well, why didn't she just leave? Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I don't know. So for me, it was like, like I had said, being so demoralized. Like I knew people in their 40s and 50s who would try to get out and they would try to go get another job. But once you've already been like spotted and recognized, the shame like just covers you. Um, The doubt and insecurity, people in the porn industry literally tell you, I had male actors, female actors, actresses, and producers all tell me that you will never be able to do anything else after this. Right. They all tell you that. Like, once you get in, once you shoot that movie, like, you're exposed, um, and you're so beaten down, like, you feel so disgusting that you really don't even know that your life is worth living anymore. Then you like buy into this facade of, well, I'll just, I'll just trade like a normal life for this life. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, they do stay on drugs and alcohol. Um, it's just, if you don't see that there's anything better out there, like, Mm -hmm. you really don't, you really don't know. You just think like this must be life.
0: One of the things Dr. Mary Ann Layden talks about quite a bit is is she said when, when you look at the sexual exploitation industries, so that would be prostitution, pornography, stripping, what they fundamentally do is, is they teach people an ideology, which is that sex can be bought. And she said one of the things most people don't realize is that if you can buy something, you can steal it. Which is why the line of demarcation between rape and rape culture and the sexual exploitation Mm -hmm. industries is so thin that at many points it's non-existent. And I've talked to Mm -hmm. survivors of the porn industry and even former porn producers who talk about how frequent sexual assault is in the porn industry. How once you sign the waiver before you shoot the scene, for example, Mm -hmm. they can do more or less anything and you have no evidence that you could take to court. Um, there's a culture of coercion that if you are assaulted, um, you you can't speak out because as you just pointed out, you might lose your job. You need your job and you can't see your way around not having the only lifeline you have, even as horrible and awful as that might sound to the listener. Um, how does uh, what Marianne Lane lays out uh, relate to your experience? So
1: when I was in the industry, um, it was at a time where stuff on television was getting more and more graphic. And so what used to be sold as porn is now like on your everyday television. Right. So what the porn industry had to do is they had to up the shock factor. And they would just tell you like, this is going to make more sales. This is hot. Um, they would up the shock factor. And anything that was illegal in the U.S., they sold to Europe. So like if they needed to have a guy step on your neck, to get a facial expression they shot that part for Europe and then they just shot your facial expression to get the shock factor um so it wasn't even like you were you were selling just sex anymore like you actually were selling rape. like I have had producers have to reshoot me because they were like she looks like a rape victim like we cannot sell this and so they have like they have to get you to a point where you look like that's exactly what you want and so in your mind, like they're telling you, like, you know, this is going to increase the numbers, It's going to increase the sales. Well, basically what that equates to is this is going to get me more work. Right. And so, like, you show up and they say, like, oh, well, we actually hired you for this scene. And it's like, okay, you can leave the set um, and lose your money for the day or you can kind of negotiate. And I have had that happen sometimes where I have, like, been able to just leave the set and say, no, I, I cannot go there. And, and then other times they just brought me more alcohol, and I was like, "Okay, fine."
0: Right, because as I recall from from a different uh, interview that I did, there's often a kill fee associated with the shoot, and so once you arrive, um, uh-huh. if you don't do the scene, then you basically not only don't make money, but you have to pay money. Um,
1: uh-huh.
0: So how? Do, how yeah, and if
1: you have an agent, like that's terrifying to go back to. Right. They are angry. Right. And that could cost you a ton of work from every other producer.
0: So Jessica Neely, um, who's been on this podcast mm-hmm. before, and of course is, is the one that connected us, um, talked about mm-hmm. how when you reach a certain age, you're just expected to do more violent and de- degrading pornographic scenes. And, and her exact words on the podcast was um, women and girls in the porn industry have a shelf life. Is that true?
1: Um. Okay. So there's, there's kind of a couple different categories there. Uh, it's not necessarily age factor, um, but what happens is people will try to get, like, somebody who's 18, fresh off the bus, uh, into the industry, and they shoot them out so hard and so fast that they, like, nobody will hire them again. And so the only way for them to get work is to do more and more extreme stuff. The same thing happens as you do age. The only thing that will cover you is if you go under contract with somebody um you your guaranteed work for the rest of the year.
0: So when when you look at the porn industry so how, how long have you been out of the porn industry now?
1: Let's see, uh March of 2010, almost 9 years.
0: Almost 9 years. So uh, I've talked to some uh former porn performers who were in the industry 20 years ago in the, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And they say that the difference between then and now is so staggering uh, that it's almost yeah. hard for them to grasp. So you, you said a moment ago that you had to reshoot scenes because people said she looks like a rape victim and, and we don't want that. Well, that's almost precisely the opposite now. You have people like Carlos Scalisi, who's an American porn producer, yeah. saying uh, the future of American porn is pain. Um like back yeah. then what you described is you had to at least look like you were enjoying it, but the consciences of, mm-hmm. of, of, of the porn consumers have now been so scabbed over that they're actually looking for somebody who does look like they aren't enjoying it. And we'll get we'll get to what the cultural impact oh, yeah. of that is in a moment. But what would you say the difference is between the porn industry as you left it a decade ago and now? So in only ten years?
1: Um so, the, the cycle that they had talked to me about is uh, basically feeding people's addictions. And so, what happens is what used to arouse them doesn't arouse them anymore, right? So, like regular sex doesn't arouse, arouse them anymore. They, they can see that on ABC. Um, sorry, right. I, don't know if I was about to say that. But, um, so then you go to like strip clubs, you go to porn, you go to prostitution, you go to acting it out. Now, all of a sudden, normal sex doesn't work anymore, which is why you saw like producers would go like, all the way to other countries and hire like younger people, not for movies, but for themselves um, because it doesn't work anymore. And so like if that cycle has continued since I left, then basically people are going from regular sex doesn't work. Shock factor doesn't work. Um, now it's just pure violence. Now it's just domination. And like that, that's I- the only thing that arouses them.
0: It is. And we know that that mainstream porn right now among young men in Canada and the United States is generally at least three men um, with one girl. She's physically destroyed by the end of the shoot. And again, the argument generally put forward is simply that, well, they obviously like it, even though the only reason they're watching that kind of porn is because she very obviously doesn't. And the attitudes that this is creating culturally is extremely damaging. So you you speaking from a first hand experience looking at the porn industry, could you see that it was headed in this direction? Would you say would you say it's gotten a lot worse, or in your experience, can you not really um determine that specifically? So
1: when I left the industry, it was like uh the, the things that they were shooting were fifty guy gang bangs, a hundred guy gang bangs. Um and it was like they like more and more and more. Um so I really couldn't imagine where the industry was going to go after that.
0: Right. Right.
1: I mean they just love to see like a tiny little girl get completely ravaged. And they, they tried to do that with me in the beginning. And for the first part, like that did happen until I went under contract and got like a little bit of say over, um, over what I got to do. But still again, like that was still the same company that had to reshoot because of, you know, things that had happened. Right. But, um, like they, because I was like five foot two, a hundred and a hundred to a hundred and five pounds. Um, fresh out of high school they wanted to try to see like how many people they could get to put with me because they just wanted to see me destroyed but like, that was entertaining for them
0: and what is the impact of, of that on a young girl coming out of high school and joining the porn industry
1: it, it was terrifying um there were times where like when So when the producer would bring the camera around to a different angle, like I would bury my head and cry Um, so much to the point that one time one of the guys had to walk off set and he was like, I cannot do this to her anymore. And it's like I did whatever it took to just finish the job. And so sometimes that was alcohol. Sometimes it was drugs. uh, Sometimes it was crying when they weren't looking
0: how how do the producers and the directors live with themselves and that that's an honest question it's not a rhetorical question but when they see what they're doing and they're trying to do it when they're when they're pushing things well when they're seeing how far they can push things like how how are they living with themselves
1: because you have to sell yourself to the producer and say like yes this is exactly what i want like they had like for the most part they believe that you want to be there as well, because otherwise they're like, eh, I don't really buy it. I don't want to film her.
0: Well, because there was one um, former porn producer who told me in an interview, he said, the reason I didn't think porn was sexy was because he said it's impossible to be turned on by something after you see a 23-year-old girl in the corner sucking her thumb because her mind is so blown by what she just got put through on screen.
1: Right. Yeah, that happened with the, the people that I worked with. Um, as well, the company that I had worked with, uh, like I said, like normal, like they had seen so much of it, like normal, just there was nothing really that turned them on anymore. And honestly, I think the thing that broke the producer that I was working with was he would shoot a series that portrayed younger girls, like underage girls. Um, and his daughter was getting that age. And I just remember him crying, like thinking like, like my daughter's coming this age, like, I don't know how to live with this. And to be honest, he snapped. And a lot of people I know, they they snapped and they haven't gotten their sanity back.
0: Yeah, I really I really want to talk about that. So um tell tell us the story about this producer. We've had Jessica tell her story on the, on this podcast before, and she's also really gone she's also kind of told the story of a lot of her friends. I remember when I sent her a message once and I asked her, I said, What do you think the suicide rate uh in the porn industry is? And she said, Let me get back to you. And a couple of hours later she messaged me back and just said, I think all of my friends have tried. Um Yeah. So yeah. When you look at this, uh, this, the the uh, the, the story of, of the porn producer, because that 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 that's that's quite quite powerful. I remember um, uh, meeting an older man. He was a father. He had a bunch of girls and he was mm-hmm. talking to me about his porn addiction and how he was struggling with it, and that was the thing that crushed him. Um, the reason okay. he couldn't stop crying was because he realized, as his girls at 17, 18, 19, 20, one of his girls, I believe, had just turned uh, 20, um, that the girls that he was watching in porn were, were the age of his daughters, and that just made him hate himself. So uh, how mm-hmm. was this? Uh, how did the story unfold for the producer you referred to? Um, so basically,
1: like we were all trying to like hold each other together, like as best as we could. And when I finally left, um, people, so one director ended up back on drugs. Um, he, the producer owner, he ended up on drugs. The company fell apart. This was why this became like the number three company in the industry and it fell apart. Um, right around as all that was unfolding, the general manager, um, I'll get emails like like once a year. Like he'll try to find like a different way to connect with me wherever I am, talking about like how he's gonna um, kill me and then rape my dead corpse and stuff like that. And this guy was like like one of the smartest guys I knew like out like outside of what he did in the industry. Like he was brilliant, and so to see him completely schizophrenic, like he is schizophrenic. I checked around. Um, because his messages were so graphic and didn't make sense, like it it completely consumed him, and that wasn't the guy that I worked with. Shocking enough, um, the producer, you know, I think he went to homeless, but like, he's like a multi-millionaire and lost his entire family. I don't even think like he's allowed to see his girls, and became homeless and is on drugs. And I'm still, you know, I I still try to send people to to look in after and, and try to help him to get out. So I'm, I still have hope that maybe one day the right people will come in his life. But as of right now, like, they're just lost. And, like, they're not the only ones that commit suicide. Like I, like you said, like the guy who was addicted to porn, like, I had somebody come from Georgia to California and um, took his entire family savings. I didn't know this the time until his wife called me and to get just to get me to sign his dvd collection and once he like realized i was a real person and he came home he totally broke and he like shot himself in front of his entire family because he did not know how to break this addiction he he couldn't unplug the computer and his wife called me and i'm dealing with a grieving wife at work so like that was the first time that i realized like this this like porn is actually killing people yeah and when I left, like, I just remember saying, like, like I, I I was completely suicidal. Like, every night I was, like, I could not bear to live. And I remember contacting the Refuge for Women, and this was a year and a half out. I did everything that the society told me. You know, I created my own business. I finished school, like, all that stuff. But I still could like, I couldn't muster up all the pain that I was living with and figure out how to face my day. And so I was, I wasn't drinking anymore. So my next option was to die. And I just wrote on my application to refuge for women. I said, if this doesn't work, I have nothing left. I have no other options. I do not know how to live with this.
0: When you talk about uh, drug and drinking uh, drug use and drinking in the porn industry, what kind of drugs are you talking about?
1: Um, well, I was addicted to crystal meth, but most people use cocaine because, um, it's less, uh, less problems with, like, picking and anything that's going to give you, like, obvious, like, scars or something, you know, um, superficial. So cocaine was usually what they would get away with and just a ton of alcohol.
0: What would you say the average survival rate for somebody going into the porn industry is?
1: Survival, like,
0: let's say functioning life
1: a functioning life after I don't know that many people um I mean I I I know a few that have made it out and, and advocate um I know a few that kind of keep to themselves but for the most part like it just seems like everybody stays addicted to drugs and alcohol um or they Sometimes you can end up trading, like, one platform for another. Um, I mean, I just read a story that someone else, like, who was a huge advocate, I think she ended up taking her life or overdosing. Um, And I just, like, from what I understand, that's that's common. That's the norm. And so, like, we have to be really intentional to fight for our healing. Like, a lot of us think, like, okay, we're just going to start a new life and we're just going to forget about that. But no, like, you have to go through intense trauma healing to be able to interact with people on a normal relational level again. And people don't know that. And so they're just sitting there like insane.
0: Yeah, no, I remember where did I, where did I meet Jessica for the first time? It was in Houston, Texas at an anti-porn conference. Um, Mm -hmm. And she has very long hair and somebody commented on her long hair and she, she suddenly pulled it off. She said, it's a wig. I've been tearing out my real hair just Trying to mentally process what I've been through in the industry, which is quite a jarring visual, um, quite a a jarring visual to see how pornography, which is driven, uh, pornography use, which is driven by lust and addiction, uh, like literally consumes and destroys the people that are feeding that addiction for those who are watching Mm -hmm. it. How did you leave? Tell us uh, like that story sort of a step by step. Give us a chronology of how you got out of the porn industry because that's one of the reasons your story is exceptional. You got out. Um mm-hmm. you can talk about what you went through. You're helping other people. You're trying to pull other people out of where they are. And so your story is exceptional for a, for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah, it
1: it is actually um it was quite different than a lot of girls. Um, so what happened with me is the company that I went under contract with, uh, we lost our salesperson. And so I had started taking over. Um, when they offered me the contract, I, I needed insurance. And so I, I asked for a job. I said, I will definitely go under contract, but like I need a job. I, I need somewhere to go every day. I, I cannot be just at, at my hotel drinking all the time. Um, and so that was my first step was like figuring out how to have something somewhat productive to do each day besides the three times a month that I was gonna be filming. so they gave me a job, I got insurance, I started answering sales calls, and um when I would go to the a v n show like i'd i do part of the time signing autographs, and then the other part I'd be meeting with with our v o d um people um and all our our distributors and stuff and I just realized you know what? Like I can do something else. Um, I, I actually have other skills and I used to be pretty smart before drugs. So I kind of started running with that and tried to make a name for myself as, which is hard to do as a woman, um, let alone as a woman that was coming out of, of the movies. And so I had to like work super hard to be taken seriously just on the distribution side. But what happened is, um, Not everybody took me seriously, so I'd still go to these shows. Now I'm no longer performing. Now I'm just on the business side, and yet, like, producers would come up and grab my hair and show me who's boss. Other people would grab, you know, other parts of me. Um, I had been out, let's see, my last film was technically 2006. That's almost four years that I had been out, and at these shows, like, people would still follow me with cameras, um, and... And people would come from all over the world and stalk me. And I just realized, like, I can't ever, like, have a new life unless I get out of this business altogether. Like, whether I'm performing or not, like, I have to get out of this business, like, I or I'm going to die here. Um, And so I had started going back to school while I was working in the distribution. And I got enough schooling that I opened up my own health and fitness business. Um, I actually happened to be engaged to one of the second largest distributor of porn in the country at the time. And um and so that kind of became like my next thing. But then he he also had addictions and he didn't make it. He overdosed. Um But I saw like even like now I'm out of the porn industry, but I'm living with this man who's still in the porn industry, who sees my face and everything else, uncovers all the live long day. And he would come home and take that out on me. And so now I'm in this relationship, like I'm out of porn. Um, I'm starting my new life, but here's my fiance taking out all of his, um, anger on me from what he sees of me and says, like, well, you took it there, like, you should be able to take it at home. So that was my next step. So my next step was like, okay, I've got to get out of this relationship. Right. Like, this, like, this, like, I'm going to die in this relationship. Um, and so I did, and within five months, I was just absolutely at a loss. I, I didn't know. Like I wanted to get to a point where going back to the industry was never an option for me or going into a relationship like that was never an option for me. And I didn't know how to get there on my own. And so that's when I actually got help. So Those, it, it was a process. It was like over four five years before I completely cut ties with everything.
0: Four years. And how did you not psychologically snap during that time? Um, if you look at just what you've rambled off in the last couple of minutes, just the things that happened to so many of the people that you knew, Um, Mm -hmm. where did you end up finding the help and the healing that you needed to eventually become the person you are today?
1: Uh, Through my recovery program and through church, I just kept showing up. Right. Helpless, completely helpless, just kept showing up. And I, I kept seeing... You know, husbands who loved their wives and, and parents who wanted to spend time with their children and they weren't a burden. And, and I saw like, you know, families that wanted to be together and I found like a place to belong with people that didn't need anything from me or use me or hurt me. And it just took a while of seeing that before it was like, I, I want, I want that kind of life. And in order to have that kind of life, like I've got to get away from everything that is destroying my life.
0: When you look at, at the level of cynicism that you acquire for being part of that industry, I remember one former porn performer said the first time she realized she was talking to somebody that didn't want anything from her, she bawled mm-hmm. not just because it felt yeah. good, but also because she just didn't know what to do. She She didn't right. know how to function in a relationship where somebody wasn't trying to take something from her. And so while she had this overwhelming relief, she also was just at a loss. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, uh, I'm sure you've heard of her, Belle Knox, the Duke university porn star, her real name is Miriam Weeks, who said, mm-hmm. she, and she only she said this like a year after joining the industry, she was like 19, um, that porn has basically screwed up her life and made her much older, um, than her years. And also very, very cynical because she's just always looking for somebody who's trying to pimp her out or traffic her or push her to the mm-hmm. next level. And so how did she manage to, uh, you know, Take the community on its own terms, essentially, to work yourself out of this mindset of cynicism um, that was an, an inevitable byproduct of the industry that you were part of.
1: So, an interesting thing about how the brain works is um, our brain operates uh, out of experience, right? So, um, if I don't have any new experiences, the only thing I can do is operate out of old ones. And so, one of the most healing things for me was. You know, like, like those relationships got healthier and healthier. So it was like, once one got healthy, I started to see what was unhealthy, I could re- I I learned how to operate out of a new place. And so it, it was a lot of observation, a lot of intentional observation uh you know going to family dinners uh with people at church and stuff like that and not people who are quoting the bible at you people who are actually living out love joy peace faithfulness like actual tangible fruit from their spirit and and i leaned into those situations and the longer that i was in relationships with people who didn't um, use me, abuse me, try to cheat on their wife with me. Because it was really confusing because like like when I left the industry, like any couple who wanted to be my friend, I assumed, oh, they probably want me to be their third partner. And, and some of them did. And so to finally be surrounded with couples that like, like that wasn't even a thought on their mind. Um, and so now I have like all these new experiences off to operate out of because I, I have joined different families. I have made healthy friendships. Um, But until you do that, all you know is every class of human being who used and abused you. And like, and you, you have to have somebody in your life that you can trust their discernment because like our discernment's broken for like a good while. And so you have to have somebody in your life that you bring those relationships to and they can tell you like, no, like something's off about that in case you're not seeing it because it feels normal to you. So you have to have a couple people who can walk on that journey with you. I did not do it alone. It took a ton of people to get me to where I am today. And I still live in very large communities. Um, but I was able to get married. I was able to have a beautiful, healthy, honest, open relationship with somebody who never even like, like had heard of a path like mine. You know, who didn't do drugs and didn't use porn and didn't have sex and and waited till marriage and, like, all this stuff. Like, we had two opposite backgrounds, but he saw so much of who I am today. Like, Like, he's never once, like, thrown my past in my face. Like, he wouldn't consider doing anything that, like, hurts or dishonors me. And I was able to have that healthy relationship because of all the healthy friendships that I had first.
0: That's beautiful. When you're looking I have
1: a really good life today. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, no, and but I but <laughs> it still
1: takes intentional work. Like I still have to work at that.
0: Yeah, no, I get myself. And you'd said some of it uh before before we uh started our conversation when we were emailing back and forth. One of the things I really wanted to take a look at with you, um, because of, of the community that you're part of now, um is what what is your reaction when you see how the extent to which pornography is creeping into the Christian community? Because a lot of the arguments about pornography that it's normal, that the girls in porn want to do it, uh, you um, you know you've you've heard them all far more times than I have, um, which okay. used to be just sort of part of broadly secular culture, are now creeping okay. into the church. The so, uh, polling data on pornography in the church is terrifying. Um, mm-hmm, Over 50% absolutely. of evangelical pastors admit to having looked at it okay. in the past month. The average age of ex- yeah. first exposure to porn is down to age uh, nine years old. I've met porn addicts as young mm-hmm. as eight. So how do you respond to the growing threat of pornography to the church, I've said before that if we get this wrong, almost nothing else is going to matter because porn is the one of the few things that has the ability to destroy us from the inside and to destroy the institutions like marriage and family that the church needs to survive.
1: Hmm. Um, well, the first thing is I don't think it just started creeping into the church. I think people are just starting to come out and, con- and confessing it or um, admitting that that's been going on. Um, I, I, it's a, the hard part about the Christian community is there's so much more shame. Um, that's a very private, um, life of destruction. And so it's not like something that like, you can like obviously see in somebody else and be like, Hey, like you're struggling. How can I help you with that? Like you, you don't know that's going on. Um, and so I don't, I definitely don't think it's new, Um, You know, I graduated seminary, and I worked with both men and women um, struggling with their porn addictions. People, like, their marriage is breaking up. Um, And it's really hard because, like, you go to a seminary, and you're academically taught to... Um, you're basically ac- academically taught, like, how to teach the Bible. But the thing is, is like, like, our faith is more than teaching the Bible. Like, our faith is an actual way of life and living. And there's freedom that we can have here. And so it's not a scholastic thing. And so the problem is with, like, Christian communities and, like, seminary that I'm noticing is a really big struggle right now is, is they can't be open about that because you get kicked out of school. You can't be open about that at church because you get you you lose your job. And so um, now I wasn't raised in a church, and um, and they use this term out here called the Bible Belt. Um, I always thought that was like kind of a bad term, um, but so church out here is more of a cultural thing and less of a faith thing. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so um, when like the people that I spent time with, like they were raised in the church. And so, like they they know the traditions, they know the liturgy, and all of this stuff. And so they go to school, they become a pastor. Like they have no idea, like 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 transformation was meant to happen. They have no idea that like freedom can happen here on earth. And so, luckily, the 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 churches that I have been a part of are very open and honest about like like we're gonna fail you. Like we have problems, but we're all going towards this life together, versus people who are more worried about their job and stuff like that. And we, you know, and they take measures of accountability and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, it's really disheartening. But the thing is, is like, um, like the church is where we go to have a place to belong so we can all get healthy together. We don't go because we are healthy, you know,
0: Do you see- like it's supposed to
1: be for like, like a welcoming place for every single person, to be able to have, like, a conscious contact with God, no matter what they're struggling with.
0: Yeah, well, G.K. Chesterton— So
1: have to be open.
0: G.K. Chesterton said that church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so I think people, like, hold the church to, you know, like, on a pedestal, and, um, and it's like, like, we're just—we're people. We're people who have—like, basically, I don't— So it's kind of embarrassing, but, like, I used to do interviews while I was in the industry, and the only thing that I knew about my faith was that Jesus died for me, too. And if he died for me, too, he died for you to have life as well, no matter what you ever went through. Like, he knew all of that, and that's the only thing I knew. And to be honest, like, sometimes, like, it's just got to be that simple. Like, you were included, too,
0: no matter what. When you look at, at the the Christian church and the impact porn has had over the last five or six years, because this is something I've noticed a lot uh, on social media, do you think that the prevalence of porn has sort of desensitized us to things that would have once shocked us and things that would have even once repulsed us? I think about the fact that you know, even secular people, feminists, activists, um, human trafficking um, a- a- activists, uh, are complaining about shows like Game of Thrones that show very glamorized um you know sexual assault basically um right and yet it's a show that will be will be defended by a lot of Christians and a lot of mainstream Christian commentators uh even mm-hmm. do you think that this is sort of yeah. like pornography has desensitized us because the the glamorized sexual assault that's shown in Game of Thrones isn't as bad as what's shown in porn that we're somehow okay with that now? Do you think the Overton window has been pushed, or what do you think about all of that
1: um so, yeah, I've had a real big struggle with the whole, like, not porn, but media, like the, the music that you're listening to at the gym, the the television that you're watching at home. Like, I once told my friends, like, I'm not going to go over to your house and watch you and your husband make out. That's not entertaining for me. So why am I going to sit there and watch a show where all they're doing is making out? Doesn't make sense to me. Right. Um, so, like, the hardest thing for me in the Christian community is seeing, um the the shows like like orange is the new black like i mean i was on netflix and i saw a preview of two women in the shower making out like without my permission like it just like automatically went on and and they're like sitting there discussing stuff like that and so they don't understand like we're supposed to be so protective of our mind like the second like one thing becomes okay in our mind like we can that that bar gets lower and lower and lower and so like even before porn i think media has a huge impact in the Christian community. And I hope that's one thing that I can help point people to is like let's let's watch things that that promote human flourishing, right? Because what I saw growing up were movies like American Beauty where The dad is masturbating to his daughter's friend or, um, like Poison Ivy or American Pie, where they're trying to sleep with their friend's mom. Like, like all this, like, like almost glamorized pedophilia becomes okay and, and funny. And like we wonder where all, you know, where all these desires come from because they're like, oh, that, that does seem kind of like fun or, um, so I think like we really have to be careful with just our media in general and what we're putting in.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I guess the final question um, would be an open-ended question, and take as as long as you want with this one. As somebody who has seen the the porn industry firsthand, somebody who has survived the porn industry, somebody who's still in touch with people that you knew during the in, well, during your time in the industry, and, and, and have seen people die as a result of pornography, mm-hmm. what is your message to Christians and to the culture at large? on pornography, if you could tell, if you got 15 minutes to ad- address the nation on pornography, what would you say?
1: Wow. <laughs> um, I mean, it's really hard because a lot of the people who are addicted to pornography are not coming at it with a healthy mind, right? So, right. like, no matter what I say... The the addiction is so deep. So I guess like what I would say is, is first of all like seek help. Like like talk to somebody. Like don't don't sit there and justify it to yourself. Like like seek help because you're not going to see anything clearly until like that addiction is arrested for a little while. Um, like you're going to see things through through the eyes of pornography, like things that you wouldn't even think are related. Um, but as far as, like, the girls and the guys that are in there, um, you know, let, let's talk about what's sexy, okay? So, like, here you are thinking, like, this like this is great. Like, these women are enjoying it. But what you're not seeing is, okay, like, I had to take this many antibiotics to counteract this disease. Um, the guys had to shoot up their uh, their parts so that they'd be, even be able to perform. And they're getting used over and over and over again. They can't even, like, feel sex anymore. That's not sexy. Um, well, you know, your back is going out, so you're like on, on Vicodin just to be able to hold these positions so that you can get a, so that you can get a decent picture so that on the back of the cover, it looks like you had fun. Um, there's, you know, you've got gonorrhea, chlamydia, like all kinds of bacterial infections, productions having to, um, shut down because, You know, somebody brought HIV back. So you're basically just watching a bunch of traumatized people who a lot of them like either started with a drug addiction. Most of them started with a drug addiction that got worse. I don't know that the drug addiction started in porn. A lot of them came already addicted. Um, And so you're watching people that were either like every single person that I met had sexual abuse in their background. And so what happens with sexual abuse is you either end up with like a, a hyperdrive, and so then you have an addiction yourself, or like you you think like sex, um, somebody's gonna take it from me anyway, so I might as well be a willing participant. Like a lot of people think that. Like they're gonna take it from me anyways. So you're basically getting to watch people and and use humanity. Um, at a point where they have already been so traumatized, and then even when they leave and they're dealing with that trauma the rest of their life, you're, you're continuing to buy into that. You're continuing to buy into, um, to using another human being to meet your needs. And it's like, at what point do, do we stop using each other? And, and they'll be like, well, we're not trafficking somebody, or oh, they're of age, or oh, they want to be there. Like, you're using another human being. And by you doing that, you're creating a demand for more human beings to be used. Like what, what if instead when people were on the street or they had no families, there was more options out there where they, they would help somebody to have a life that was like meaningful and purposeful. Why is this the option that you get presented with? And that's been going on since the Bible. I mean, like, women in general, like, once they lost their fathers or they didn't have any protection, like, that was their way of providing for themselves. It's not, like, new information. But why is that? Like, we live in a culture where that doesn't have to be an option anymore. But because of the demand, it is. And so we have to stop with the demand.
0: Stop with the demand. That's a... That's a good place to end it, because that's really what all this boils down to. Deanna, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story. I know it's not easy.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with former porn performer Deanna Spangler, going through the details of her life in the porn industry, explaining how poisonous pornography is, and I hope... Giving everybody who will listen to this incentive to quit pornography, kick it out of their lives, and convince everybody that they know that pornography is something that simply has no place in the lives of everyone anybody who wants to live a healthy and moral life. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you'd like to check out our past podcasts, including other podcasts on this very issue, head over to news.com where you can find other podcasts, opinion commentary, and news updates from the front lines of the culture wars. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.